We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. The Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Gators dig in. Fourth down. Etling is under center at the one-yard line. Edling takes the snap, tosses the guys. Guys trying to lead over the top. He did get down. He did not get down. The Gators have won the game. The Gators have won the game. The Gators have won the game. Darius Guy's trying to hurdle into the end zone. And the Gators stomped him. He didn't make it. And the Gators have won the game. And we're going to fly home. Oh, my champions of the Eastern Division. How does it feel, LSU? Take that, you little jokers. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. Welcome to the post-LSU edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Alan, how good did it feel to beat LSU, those trash-talking little clowns? That was an incredible win. I, I think that fourth down goal line stand is going to live in my memory forever. Is one of my favorite experiences as a Gator fan. It was incredible. What was it like where you were watching? It was it was great. We were at my house, and we have uh, three flat screens on the wall at my house where you can watch a variety of college football games. And there were seven or eight of us all just anxiously huddled up watching the last play. 
And as soon as we stopped them, it was just pandemonium. We're hugging, we're high-fiving, we're yelling. Uh, it was <laughs> it was quite the scene, quite the jubilant scene to get that W. And I feel like the question that I want to ask you, as you're sitting in Tennessee and I'm sitting in Gainesville, we're separated here, uh, how big was this win for the Gators program? It feels like it's a massive win. Not only does it secure the SEC East and send the Gators to the SEC Championship for the second straight year, it's just a big win for the McElwain era, I think. Um, he's the first coach to go to the SEC title game in his first two seasons, and you know there wasn't always an SEC title game, so that comes with a bit of an asterisk. But huge win for him, I think, recruiting-wise. This could be big. I mean, it's, it's such an accomplishment. Even if the SEC East is weak, it's still a really big deal to win it. And, you know, I mean, there's six other teams who would like to be sitting where the Gators are right now. So just a crazy big win for the Gators. Yeah, super important win for us. How do we not stop them on fourth down? I'm sitting in this chair right now, and and I'm, I'm frustrated. And for those of you that are saying, hey, I'm kind of frustrated right now, we're going to get to that. In order of operations here on the show, we are going to talk about first how the players did, how well they did the job they were given to do. And then we're going to switch to the coaching. How well were the tactics handled? How well was the the game planning and the strategy done, which we talked a lot about last week? Uh, what did we see? What did we notice? What could have been better? So we'll get to those thoughts. But but right up front, the first big takeaway is important win. Jim McElwain becomes the first coach in SEC history to lead a team to the SEC title in his first two seasons. He does so with seven starters being injured. He does so with two of his best linebackers, probably NFL caliber linebackers. Uh, injured and out of the game. He does it on the road in the game that was supposed to be a home game against a team that called us out, called our school out, had no respect for the situation that was going on in the time, called us scared to play. Darius Geis, the week of the game, said that they can't run no more. Joe Oliva, the the athletic director for LSU, shamed himself in his school and, and basically said, we're going to do it here. Here's the demand. Here's what's going to happen. And uh, it, it kind of feels like to me that not only is it a good one for the program, but it's the Louisiana Purchase. What a great deal for the Florida Gators. We go there on the road. We beat them. Uh, we, we end Ed O's campaign to be their coach. And we get two years of home games. So well done negotiating by, by the Florida staff. Uh, Louisiana Purchase Part 2 has been enacted. And take that LSU. Yeah, really emotional win for the team, too. You could tell that they were really hyped to come away with this victory because of what all the talk around the game, like you said, being called out and really, like you said, inappropriately, I think McElwain said as much, he was emotional after the game. You could tell that this game meant a lot to him. And yeah, so not only, you know, all of the standings and championships, but I think emotionally, this was a really satisfying win for Gator nation as a whole. James, this was a series of big plays that won this game. So this game, really lived and died on a few moments in this game, which was, we talk about that. I mean, it's, it feels like coach speak to say that a little bit. Sometimes overly reductive to say that, you know, a game is won or lost in big plays, but this game maybe lived up to that more than any I've ever seen. I'm going to talk about my first two favorite plays. And I'll let you throw a couple more on the fire here, but that bomb to Tyree Cleveland, it feels like the most important play of the game. Like I said, about 10 other plays. It swung the, the whole feeling of the game. It felt like the Gators might never score, and all of a sudden they were leading. Incredible. And then, of course, our boy Vojan Joseph. This play has been repeated a lot on social media of him laying the wood to Danny Etling right at the one-yard line. 
keeping him out and then keeping out which really kept LSU from scoring because they botched the field goal after that. Give me some of your favorite big plays from this game. Yeah, that Voshan Joseph play is my favorite play. One, because just last week we highlighted how how much I've emphasized my love for him and how he just drills people when he's in the game. And I felt like you could feel the momentum when that play happened. You could feel it with the players. You could just feel that it was like, no, no, we're taking a stand. Like, you're not getting in the end zone. You're not going to beat us. Uh, and that coming from a freshman, which is obviously really exciting. I thought Eddie Pinheiro, three for three in his field goals, handling his business on the road, incredibly important in a game like this. We've seen Alabama lose to LSU uh, basically exclusively when they miss field goals in games like this. That was really important. Johnny Townsend hammering some of those punts Mega to flip field him. position. So important in a game like that. And then, of course, Jordan Scarlett. I think of almost every play he was he was in <laughs> was just a highlight. I mean, carrying people, running with people, and then only to maybe be outdone by P. Ryan's one run where he says, hop on my back, we'll give you a piggyback ride. Like, so many great individual moments. Caleb Brantley on the fumble. I mean, Caleb Brantley again on the goal line stop. Just share it and Marcel Harris on the fourth down play. You can think of so many things the players did in this game. You felt like they were giving 110% out there, which is an incredible cliche. But during that game, the players were giving everything they had to win that. They wanted this game. They wanted to show LSU that the talk about them being afraid and dodging game was ridiculous. And they overcame a whole bunch of injuries to do it. So just hats off to the players. Like, that's what you want them to do. You want them to take the game plan the coaches give them and do their best with it and leave it all on the field and minimize their mental mistakes. And I feel like they really did that. It was a tremendous Saturday for our players. Yeah, I want to mention Caleb Brantley as well. I mean, huge play where he causes a fumble when the game feels like it might get out of hand. Another knife's through and you know, has a tackle for a loss. Another goal line stand. I mean, this defense, and it got their back up to the wall. They basically, you know, won the game on the goal line three or four times. Incredible effort by them. Um, you know, also, we have to mention our other two freshman linebackers, Kyle Johnson and David Reese. Those guys played like men out there. This is a game. This is a linebacker kind of game. And they really stepped up. I mean, they were all over the place. You know, I think it could have been easy for them to feel you know, like the moment was too big for them. And I was really impressed by their play, especially David Reese, uh, almost always in the right spot. And that's a tough, you know, task for a freshman to play middle linebacker on the road in that kind of environment. So, like you said, the players really stepped up. I mean, Scarlett, beast mode. I mean, it reminded me so much of Marshawn Lynch on some of those runs. So, I mean, excellent job by them. And let's jump in maybe a little bit tactically. I mean, there's a lot of big plays by the team, both on offense and defense. And so what are some of the things that we did well? I want to maybe tee up James here to talk about this. Last, If you're listening to the podcast last week, you heard James talking about us running a 5-2 defense, basically five defensive linemen, two linebackers. And the coaching staff must have been watching that same tape, obviously, because we ran a lot of that. Do you think that was a really big factor in the game? I think it was a big factor, and we I wasn't so sure we were going to see it. I know Campus Insiders wrote the article last week. We talked about it at length on the podcast, but it's rare for defensive coordinators, especially in college, to be that multiple. Given our injuries, it would have been easy to say, hey, we don't have enough. And in fact, I think a lot of the comments on the article that I read were like a lot of people trolling it saying, oh, hey, we don't have enough bodies for that. Um, 
which obviously I would I would think is foolish and wound up being foolish. But we debuted on the first play of the game. We ran a five two. We ran a lot of a five two defense. We ran a lot of our our um, <clears throat> our base package as well, which is a, a cover two nickel when they had three or four receivers. So basically, a lot of the the sets we were in were what I saw on film against Bama, which of course the coaches did. Of course, McElwain called Saban and that staff. That's what coaches do, and vice versa for LSU getting tape and film and and study on us. But hats off to Jeff Collins for implementing the strategy. Uh, LSU had their way with us in between the 20s, but we made it hard for them. If you if you go back and you watch that game, uh, they converted a lot of third downs later on in the game after midway through the second quarter. It, it became difficult for them to convert. They had some jump balls. They had some gadget plays. But we primarily did what we talked about last week as we stopped their baseline rushing attack. So Darius Geis and Leonard Fournette were held to 123 yards total. Now, as a team, they rushed for over 200. But we stopped what they wanted to do, first and foremost, enough, enough. Uh, and that was really, really important. And so I don't think without the 5-2, we're able to do that. In fact, we ran a 4-3 for large parts of the game, especially in the second half. And that when they caught us in a run in that formation, they were really able to gouge us. So important, important job with regards to the strategy that was done on the defensive end amazing execution by Jeff Collins and the guys, given that they had so many new faces out there in the game of this magnitude against a team that is older than them on the other side of the ball. Uh, you know, Randy Shannon and and Jeff Collins, really phenomenal job. They were unrattled. Uh, they were they were ready for this moment. Um, and I thought the strategy coming into the game worked pretty well. And I like the fact that Jeff Collins has continued to seemingly learn from some of the mistakes that were made earlier on with regards to to some tactics. Yeah, I mean, if you were noticing a guy you haven't seen out there very often, Daniel McMillan, number 13, basically right up next to one of the defensive ends. So using another linebacker rather than another pure defensive lineman. But, um, yeah, that was interesting to watch LSU, especially in the second half, not really be able to do this kind of stuff that they – normally do to teams when they're successful and you know i honestly didn't know if we were going to have the bodies to pull it off um no marcus may no anzalone no jared davis so like i said hats off those guys for being in the right spot and really pulling it out um let's let's get to maybe a, a few of the places where you feel like the coaches maybe made some questionable decisions what maybe what's your biggest question mark for the coaches tactically in this game well I'm gonna. I'm about to get to that in a second, but I feel like I want to address a really good tactical adjustment first. We'll start with the positive, and that was on defense. So LSU came out; they went right down the field and they scored on us. Um, obviously, you have two new linebackers in the game. They're faced with things they haven't seen. We were incorrectly handling some basic things. I'm sure we covered in practice that week, like how to handle a fullback that doesn't block but runs out in the flat. How to handle a tight end that does the same thing. And I was texting with several friends at the time that, hey, if this defense is as good as we think they are and if these coaches are as sound as they should be, they're going to make these adjustments and take that away, which is what they did. And in fact, on the Vosan Joseph play where he hits Etling and Etling does not score, that happens because Sherritt chips Leonard Fournette, who's running out. He hits him on the line, which is exactly what you should do to slow up his run so Voshan Joseph can catch back up to cover Fournette, in which case then Etling can only choose to run for the goal line, which of course Voshan Joseph then hits him. So I thought we really made some small key adjustments. In the second half especially, we slowed down our rush. We were over-pursuing in our lanes, and that was allowing LSU to gouge us with some screen plays and some run plays, and we really cleaned that up and started to wait for them to come to us. 
Uh, really just fun to watch as that went on. But as fun as that was to watch in the defense, there were some things in the second half that drove me pretty crazy. Uh, the first one is we have this incredibly magical drive where all of a sudden we're pushing people right down the field. And oh, by the way, TJ McCoy was a baller at center. I mean, you yeah, watched it on film. Yes, we have been talking about it all year long about the job I thought Dillard wasn't doing in the run game and the job that TJ McCoy did. And in fact, we ran right behind him. So that shows you how well he did. We drive all the way down the field and we're faced with a third and goal on the on the four-inch line. And Jordan Scarlett, who is your guy, is lined up at fullback, which we don't do. And you've got P. Ryan at tailback. Our decision is not to just hand it off again and have him drive the pile for a touchdown or at least make that call and if they stop us, tip your hat to them. Our decision is to run a, a fullback dive fake toss out to the outside. We're also going to run this play right at LSU's best defender, Arden Key, who has a wide split from the start, as well as on the same side that we have a wide receiver. So we were going to count on a crackback block on Arden Key, and then we're going to leave Piran one-on-one racing to the pylon against LSU's corner. I don't like that play from the beginning, tactically. Even if it works, I just don't like it. I think when you're running straight ahead and it's working, and that's what's been working, you do it. Um, So to execute a toss pitch, which was a bad pitch by Appleby, to do it against their best defender schematically seems like a very poor idea to me. So that was a very frustrating moment when that happened. We wind up instead kicking a field goal, uh, which would loom large. So that was the first of a few series on offense that got got frustrating. We then, of course, get the Voshan-Joseph recovery. We're up 13-10. to There's four minutes left in the game, and we're on LSU's 25-yard line. And we promptly go run, run, run field goal, which is insane. You have 25 yards to put the ball in the end zone and win the SEC East and put your opponent to bed. Put him to sleep. End the game. And we go run, run, run field goal. No creativity. We've been faking a jet sweep the whole game. No jet sweep. To me, it indicates this continual theme that we have highlighted this whole year this playing not to lose concept. And we talked about it last week. What kind of team are we going to be? And then finally, it comes into the, the maybe the most maddening situation on the offensive end of the ball. As um, this happens, you see this momentum shift that occurs. LSU now feels like, hey, we can win this game. We get them into a fourth and 10 situation. We talked last week about the importance of not blitzing LSU to make things more simple for them because they had been struggling to complete passes. While Edling had thrown for 150 yards at that point in time, really it was primarily a one jump ball on one screen. It's fourth and 10, we line up, and we we bring five guys. Five guys. So we leave our base nickel package, we rush five, we basically play man-to-man with a safety coming downhill to cover a running back. Well, unfortunately, Quincy Wilson falls, and wide open is, is uh, Edling's favorite receiver. So... What frustrates me with that is why not stay with your zone, even though, yes, Darius Geis had just dropped a pass in previous set, they dropped another pass, but Edling wasn't hitting balls and windows very well, so we kind of we kind of leave that circumstance, we let him drive down the field, and then we get in the situation that I think is maddening for a lot of students of the game, which is there are two minutes left, and they have a first down on the 13-yard line. And at that point in time, you're thinking the best thing that can happen is LSU gets a first down on our eight-yard line, and then we immediately call timeout, which happens with 58 seconds left in the game. We have three timeouts left. They get a first down. You have to be calling timeout there. It is absolutely the best strategic thing to do. It ensures that if they score, you can get the ball back with at least some time to kick a winning field goal with your field goal kicker who has a huge leg. 
What do we choose to do? We choose to do nothing. They then run the ball with 32, 33 seconds left, in which case we then call a timeout, which is now yet another wrong decision. If you haven't called a timeout in the first place, now is not the time because LSU needed to call that timeout. So you call a timeout for them. You now head to third down where they run the ball. There's 19 seconds left on the clock. You stop them. And we don't call timeout, which is, again, the wrong decision. We should call timeout. We need to get the ball back in case they score. Clock runs down to three seconds. LSU call times out. Timeout. We make the stop. We win the game. But really maddening, amateurish mistakes by McIlwain, in my opinion, on these plays. It, it's, a, it's a tactical blunder. And, in fact, if we had lost this game, I think there would have been a lot of attention on how poorly that was managed. So, for me... I continue to pull some of my hair out just saying, why are we missing some of these obvious things? And Alan, I'll ask you the question. It's year two of McIlwain's reign. He's coached at Colorado State for three years before that. He coached under Nick Saban, who's just a, a fanatic about the details. How is it that McIlwain can miss some of these things? How is it possible that, that these timeouts, especially at the end, which seems very black and white, how could he be so off about that tactical moment in such a large game? Well, let me... Let me break into some of the earlier stuff you said. Now, I want to say the timeouts were really confusing watching it live. And going back, it still didn't make a ton of sense. I don't know who's thinking. I would love to ask him about that. But I think some of those first things you mentioned, the toss play and then our play calling after the recovered kickoff, I think a little bit of that is if it works, it's good. If it doesn't work, it's bad. So on one hand, we're criticizing him for being too creative and not just running the ball. But then when we get the ball back after the muffed punt or excuse me, muffed kickoff, you know, we had moved down the field almost exclusively running the ball. And so if we had come out and passed right there, the only comment would have been, you just ran the ball 10 plays all the way down the field. Why would you pass it? And so I, I don't know that I can kill him on either one of those things. But we both want the creativity and we want the consistency. And he's trying to ride that line. You know, the toss play I don't think was a great idea. It wasn't a good play call. But if it works and he walks in the end zone, it's like, man, brilliant call. If we if we after the fumble kickoff, if we run the ball successfully there, then it's like, yeah, keep running it, because that's what we're doing really well. We're knocking them off the ball. So I don't want to get too I don't know, into like what each specific play looked like. Now, I do agree with you. I don't want to play conservative there and don't want to play to lose the game. But we've been running the ball so effectively and not really passing it all that effectively. So, you know, running the ball also bleeds clock. It seemed like the obvious decision. We just didn't execute on that particular series. I do think McElwain is a decent I'm not like worried. About, he's not a less miles kind of figure. Or some of these other even NFL coaches who are like, what get down to the game? What are they going to do to screw it up? I don't have that feeling from him. The timeouts were strange. I'll, I'll give you that. But I, I don't know that I want to kill him for those uh, previous, you know, quote unquote mistakes. Well, and you bring uh, up I a mean, good point. You bring up a good point on their side of the coin. And I think what's important to look at when you roll the tape is, is, and you've heard me say this a lot, what is James's philosophy on proper tactical play? It's doing what gives you the greatest expected value on each play and essentially, therefore, winning the game. 
And so on the on the third and short in the goal line, why do you not toss it? Even if it works, why do you not toss it? Because you've just run 10 plays right down their throat where almost every single one of them had been very successful. They haven't stopped it yet. Make them stop it. Number two, on those three run plays, you're right to say, well, why wouldn't you run it again? I have no problem with the first down run there. And you could even make an argument for a second down run unless you take a look at what was going on. LSU put nine men in the box on both first and second down. Nine men in the box. So we've lost any sort of schematic numbers advantage. So LSU is basically saying, we're not going to let you run. We didn't have nine guys in the box to drive before. But on this drive, you are not going to run it. And so to me, as an offensive coach, you would say, now is the time to do something different because they're telling me, they're signaling to me, don't run the ball. And that's some of the primary frustration I have is running it into the teeth of a nine-man front, generally not the best strategy. Uh, now's the time to sort of pass. But on the flip side of that coin, to your point, Alan, we talked the importance about vertical passing and we did some things in our scheme that was really good. I wish we'd have done more of it. But that Cleveland bomb on the two-yard line is a very aggressive play call. LSU was in essentially a cover one. Um, and almost a cover zero look in the beginning. So it was man-to-man defense on the outsides. The safety in the middle was going to be irrelevant. And Cleveland absolutely burned one of LSU's best corners, which he had burned earlier in the game as well. That's a good play call because LSU was saying, we're going to take away the run. Let's beat him with the pass. And you may have caught, uh, if you're watching the game, how many times you ran that jet sweep. And I wanted to call a little attention to that because that was a really good wrinkle by us. We talked a lot about how the three four is hard to read, how it's hard to run against. Well, the reason you run the jet sweep is it it's actually makes it more confusing for the linebackers and the safeties with regards to who their keys are, who they're stopping, who's going to block them, how it's going to work. So there are some nice jobs. There were some nice things to be done in that game that worked. And let us not say that that's not why we weren't able to run the ball. I mean, we weren't able to do some things. Um, and and to Alan's point, there is no perfect way to look back in a vacuum and say we could have done this, we could have done that. But I would like to see, and this could just be the Bill Belichick in me, but I would like to see plays that have a better chance of success being run against defensive fronts when they challenge us. And so far, the trend line I have observed is, as the game gets later and later, we care less and less about what the defense is telling us they're giving us and more and more about being safe. And that's sort of where the the resulting frustration is on, on my end of the ball. But I think the nice thing about Alan and I being on the show together is this is an opinionated matter. And there's lots of thoughts on this. And, And when you're a head coach, there's no perfect way to do anything. Um, but the game was was a really interesting tactical game, uh, I think, which is like what we're highlighting on now. You know, really interesting scenarios in this game. Yeah, and the timeouts, I mean, I think we can continue to talk about that. We could have a whole segment on that. But that's a challenging moment for a lot of head coaches. I do want to give the coaches props as well for the fact that we had one penalty in this game. With so many young players, that feels phenomenal. I don't know if that's repeatable. But I do think some credit has to go to the coaches for that as well um, because that, that wasn't the expected outcome, especially considering how penalized we've been over the last two years. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's an incredible stat on this game that 10 true freshmen played in this game. And so if you're looking at for bright spots for the future, that is an amazing statistic that should give Gator fans a lot of hope that these young guys are coming through and playing really well. And the coaches are getting these guys ready to play um, in the absence of some of their stars. What are some other quick thoughts for you, James, on this game? Well, the really smart tactical play at the end was max challenging. That was that was important. In fact, it may have won us the game. Uh, we, we got an extra maybe eight or nine inches back on that spot. 
and the game was decided by <laughs> less than eight or nine inches. So really good tactical play by him there. Very important thing to note that. You know, we're definitely not just going to nitpick positives or negatives. We just look at what we see, and that was a important one. So let it state that that's the case. I also thought Kylan Johnson drew the hardest matchup of the day. They were the one that had him shooting uh, Darius Geis as well as Leonard Fournette. And for the most part, he did a really good job. I mean, for a freshman on the road to cover those two guys was very, very impressive. So hats off to him. He wasn't perfect. But as a freshman linebacker, it's hard to think anyone could have done much better. Really, really impressive, as you mentioned, going on the road, getting this win the way that we played. And just all in all, as we highlight some of the frustrations that are going on here, we're highlighting it because you're always looking forward. Is Are these mistakes going to get us down the road? But as a win... Hard to find a more satisfying win against a team that just called you out. You moved your home game there. Uh, the national media for a while was against you. Nobody gives you a chance to win. It's the biggest upset you've had in 40 years uh, with a point spread. Just so many things to be happy about, all in a game that looked just like the Arkansas game. LSU pretty much had the same amount of yards. They moved the ball up and down the field, and yet we won that one. And we felt like the Arkansas game was winnable, which we said in the podcast. Um, Austin Appleby, we've talked none at all about, even though his numbers were small. I thought he managed the game really well. Didn't have a lot of time in the pocket. Had handled the situations pretty good. He had one bad throw. I think he made that was risky. But outside of that, a lot of incompletions, but also a solid job managing the game. The throw to Cleveland on the deep ball wasn't perfect, but it was good enough. Uh, I don't think you win that game with Del Rio. So hats off to him for coming in as a graduate transfer and getting a really big win for this program which goes back to another tactical move McElwain made on the roster last year, which was a very good tactical move, which we also highlighted, which was we're going to need Appleby in case something like this happens. So a lot of things pay dividends here. And like you said, Alan, maybe the most exciting thing is the freshmen. The youth, the McElwain recruits, they played so, so well in this game. I couldn't be more excited for the future of Tyree Cleveland. I mean, that guy has been virtually unguardable by anybody. And and that is that is something we have not been able to say about receivers in a while. So to have both him and Callaway on the roster, and you think of a situation next year where you you add some other pieces, you get Dre Massey back, there's a chance we could be really fun to watch. It's time for the free swag minute. Thanks to the gracious folks at fanessentials.net, they have allowed us to give away a month of free swag each week on this very podcast to you, our listeners. Last week, we asked you to retweet the LSU episode and we popped in all the names of the people that did that into our little random number generator and it spit out our winner micah lee pounders micah we know that you've been a supporter of the show for a long time we appreciate your listenership and you sharing the show on twitter we thank all of you who retweeted the show and all of you who retweet the show and spread the word each week we would not be here without you if you are looking to get some gear for yourself a friend a family member fanessentials.net is a great way to do that. You can hop online, you can sign up, and you can use the code GATERS to get 30% off your subscription. Each month, Fan Essentials will send you, a family member, a friend, whatever the case may be, gear from their favorite sports team. It can be anything from shirts, hats, buttons, clothes. All of it's authentic, and almost all of it is pretty darn unique, one of a kind, even if you will. So go ahead and check that out. For this week's contest, very simple. All you have to do is go like our Facebook page. If you have not liked us on Facebook, please do so. It helps us to share the show, and you'll also get a chance to win a month of free swag from fanessentials.net. Joining the show today is Ben Troop. He is an All-American tight end 
for the Gators between 2000 and 2003. Played under both Spurrier and Ron Zook. Went on to be a second-round pick for the Tennessee Titans. He was a team captain and currently does a show with uh, one of our favorite guests, Max Starks, on the Huddle Network. It's called the Max and Ben Show. You can catch him there weekly. Ben, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Man, thanks for having me, fellas. Well, Ben, let me ask you, were you surprised at the result we had from the Gators this weekend? I wasn't, I wasn't surprised with the end result, but how it ended, most definitely. I mean, you, I definitely saw us winning the game, but it, it's almost like the, the football gods knew, let's make this thing, which only we do, as dramatic as we possibly can, take, take 10 more years off my life with from speaking four downs of football, but I was happy with the result. I just didn't see it ended that way, but I think it was fitting. Ben, when you're watching the game, is it harder to watch it now as a, as a fan and alum as to when you're a player on the sidelines? Yes, I mean you realize you realize just how much goes into it from from being a fan because you don't control anything. I I used to have some control on the outcome by being out there, you know, on the field. But when you watch it, it's so easy to say, "Don't throw it!" or uh, "What kind of call is that?" But it, it's rough on you, man. But you live and die with these guys because I mean, you know, I get to say I was once one of those guys, but. It makes it, it makes it that much harder. I mean, I was actually blessed to go to the Florida Georgia game this year, and it was excruciating watching it live. And speaking of that, and you mentioned just a little bit of this with kind of second guessing calls this year, especially on this very show, we've talked a lot about some of the tactical decisions that have been made in the LSU game. There are a lot of interesting tactical decisions that our coaching staff made as well. Do you have any thoughts on how well they've been making some of these decisions in the Tennessee game, the Arkansas game, now the LSU game? Is there any cause for concern about how they're handling some of these big spots and big games? I do. I do. One thing that really bothers me is the fact that we get away from the run game too much. It's one of those things with a, with a one team in college football that you can't pinpoint what we're known for on the offensive side of the football. We have no identity. And you look at the fact that, yeah, I mean, Cleveland made an incredible play. But is it, was that the smartest play coming out of the goal line? Not necessarily. It, it just happened to work. And I think with our team, we, we go on – our scheme is let's put something together and hope that it works compared to this is what we're going to do on third and one. This is what we're going to do on second and long. And we, 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 we get away from what we do well. I mean, we don't do the spring game well as, as well, well we've been doing. We haven't been running the football well. So because we don't have an identity, it just it's really, really hard to really pinpoint what we're going to do playing to play out. So Ben, you are a star tied in for the Gators. Uh, can you ask me, it seems like the coaching staff is having trouble really utilizing our tight ends to the fullest this year. Is that a, a scheme issue? Is that a quarterback issue? Is that a protection issue? What, why would you say that is? I would say these guys don't demand the football enough. Your play should demand, you know, the play calling. And as a player, I mean, you look at Siante, you look at Goosby, they definitely warrant that attention, but I don't, I'm not in practice. I think guys have to earn, you know, uh, the plays that get called for them on the field. They don't do enough, in my opinion, to warrant the football. Can anybody cover either one of those guys? No. Are they a mismatch? No. But you have to make plays on a consistent level, not just in the game, but in practice to get coaches to, you know, put your net, you know, uh, put, put plays in for these guys. And in my opinion, you know, they don't stand out enough. I mean, when, when you game playing the Florida Gators, you're looking to try to stop 81 and hopefully the running game. You're never, ever looking to stop Goosby or Ciante. So I think it comes down to them wanting the ball more. Do you see a possibility of them playing in the NFL? Most definitely. I mean, I think uh, I think both of them, uh, Ciante is definitely going to have to get bigger. I mean, he's, he's not, uh, you know, he's not the biggest guy in the world. Goosby, in my opinion, man, is very, very smooth. 
I mean, he's a he's a three down he's a three down uh, tight end in my opinion. He's gonna have to get a little bigger too. They're gonna have to you know they're gonna have to play more with their hand in the ground, prove that they can uh, run, block, and pass the tech. But I think both of them talents translate to the to the next level most definitely. How much harder is it to play tight end in the NFL versus playing in college? It, it's it's like night and day. When when you're in college, you learn plays. Uh, when you're in the NFL, you learn concepts, and it takes so long to realize the concept of a play. You know, you've always been taught, know what I have on this play, know what I have on that play, until a coach says, okay, Ben, we'll go out there and do what the X does on this play. Well, I don't even know what the X does. And, and it's one of those things that I think as players, you focus so much on what you have to do instead of understanding the totality of a play. Like, why are we running this play against this defense with this scheme? So that's what makes the night and day, and that's what makes the most successful players who they are. It's not that they – their talent is greater than the next. It's just the fact that they understand the concept of what they're doing on the field as far as, like, the whole offense is involved. Yeah, we've heard that a lot from our former players that have had a lot of success in the NFL is that the cerebral part of the game is is significantly harder and much faster in the NFL. Given that, given that sort of scope, who have you seen on the skaters team that you think has really impressed you and has the, the mental ability to probably translate their game to the NFL as well as the physical tools? I mean, well, I mean, enough can't be said about those guys. But Jared Davis and Anzalone, I mean, but even though both of them were hurt, I think they they're gonna be great players on the next level because they're interchangeable. They can cover, they can blitz, they can stop the run, they can they can call out the defense. Take and and that's not and because obviously you know when you got guys like Tabor and Wilson and May, I mean those guys are gonna make some secondaries very very good. But the linebacker position is really becoming that position that's kind of like a dinosaur type position because it's can they play the outside linebacker, can he play inside. And I think with those two guys, you could put them anywhere on the field. I mean, I, I got to see them up close. Jared Davis, and these, these guys have got a lot taller than I'm used to seeing. Like, these guys like 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". But as, as far as, like, what I've seen, taking nothing away from Caleb and, and those guys, but Jared and, and Anzalone, I mean, these guys, I mean, when they're on the field, they're difference makers. And you, you know, even though we was able to have some success without them, the last couple of games, but I think those two dudes are definitely going to be some big-time players on the next level. Okay, Ben, it's FSU week. What do you remember about those weeks while you were playing? <sighs> Not a lot of success, I mean, as far as, like, wins and losses, but it's a it show, it's a different type of uh, – it, it, it was kind of like my Georgia-Florida week all over again because a lot of those players from the state, this is what they get up for because they played against a lot of these guys coming up and you know, went to school with a lot of these guys. It's like playing. It's like playing your little brother. You want so bad to beat them, just for bragging rights. And the good thing about it is, not most of the time. You know, my first two years, both teams was playing for something. And this year, you know, Florida just happened to be playing for something two years in a row. You know, as far as the college football playoff. But I just always remember like guys from Jacksonville and Tampa and Gainesville and Sarasota saying, "I can't stand these guys. I went to school with this guy. Play pop wonderful." So it, it's a, it, you know, and I got engulfed in it. Being from the state of Georgia, I still got engulfed in it, but ain't nothing like Florida for the state. What was it like being part of the swindle in the swamp in 2003? One of the most surreal games I think a lot of football fans have experienced with regards to officiating. I've never gotten over it. I mean, I, it's funny. I went to, uh, I got to go speak at the University of North Carolina this year through the NFL Ambassador's College Outreach Program and uh, Coach Fedora. Definitely, he was like, Ben, I still ain't got over that 2003 game. And it was so much about that game that bothered me from the standpoint of 
I've never seen officiating that bad. My mother told me something. She said she's up in the stands, and it's a Florida State fan. And the Florida State fan looked at my mother and said, we want to win the game, but not like this. Now, for a fan to admit that, you know, she says a lot about that game, but I still hadn't gotten over. That's that's Chris Rick's swan song. That's that's probably what he talk about in bars and, you know, in, in locker rooms or whatever he is and say, oh, man, let me show you this bomb I threw. And it's funny, after that game, I remember getting interviewed and somebody asked me about Gus Scott trying to, you know, get me to throw him under the bus. I was like, let me tell you something. If I got a starting 11 on a, on a, on a Florida defense, Gus Scott is one of those starting 11 because that, that level of instinct as a football player doesn't come around a lot, but that game still bothers me to this day. Yeah, it bothers, it bothers me as well. And looking at Florida State now, do you think the rivalry between the players has changed from when it was when you were a player? A lot. There's a lot of talk now that players care less about their schools than they once did. Do you buy into that at all? I don't. I don't. I think what happens with social media, it intensifies things. It shows because a lot of times, you know, bulletin board material is just what you know may we you know coach may get some through the newspaper. But now guys actually, you know, they they tweet and they thought. And the sad part about it is, just say I'm a guy that doesn't like to tweet, but I got players that tweeting all this crazy stuff. I got to be. I got to be. I got to be able to go with that. So it, it's just, it's just one of those things to where. I don't think it's, it's – listen, it's never, ever going to be – it's never, ever going to be downplayed. We can't stand Florida State, and we, and we have to keep it politically correct. You can't say what you want to say. But, no, we can't stand Florida State because I always say this. Uh, they be, you know, not to get – not to toot this man's horn, but Jameis Winston ain't running out that locker room. He's he just not. And, and Jimbo Fisher, he be talking as if them boys going to go to the national. Y'all ain't going to the AC championship. I can spend a whole week talking about Florida State because somewhere in their mind they really think they're better than us, man. But they they're gonna see they gonna they're gonna get to see uh, just what we made of come Saturday. And so that leads perfectly into my second to last question. There will be a larger question after this one, but your prediction for this week: the Gators have lost three in a row. We lost twenty-seven to two last year. What do you think is going to happen this weekend? Got to make them one-dimensional. Got to find a way to bottle up Dalvin Cook, which is a lot easier said than done. But I can see it happening. Those young linebackers we got, man, the boys are playing lights out. I think it means more to us, you know. And obviously, twenty-seven to two is not something that just goes away. Coach Mack is going to definitely have us uh, ready to go. I can see us winning the game, and we're going to have to score some points. But I can see it being a, you know, you know, a, you know, a knockout, you know, dog fight, you know, slugfest. But I can see us winning like uh, like twenty-seven, twenty-four. I like that. So, given your inside knowledge of the program and your connection to the players, your experience in the NFL. How would you grade Coach McElwain right now? How do you feel about his ability to recruit? How do you feel about his ability to to lead this team to championships? How do you feel overall about the job he's done? I think he's done an incredible job given the given the circumstances situation. You tell me a guy that could uh, that can uh, how many guys in the, in the college football can win without their starting QB, and he's been able to do it his first two years. How many guys can be down? You're starting two linebackers. Uh, down your starting quarterback, down you know decimated by injuries and still win the East at LSU when they got when they playing at full strength. I think that his ability to not build his team around one guy. The best thing he's done was when Will Britt decided to transfer. He said, "Hey man, we wish you the best." See, he didn't he didn't paralyze his team. I'm gonna wish this man the best because I don't build my team around one guy. I love Treon, but he won for Treon Harris. A lot needs it. It's hard to win with a guy like Treon who his skill set doesn't translate well to an offense. So I think Coach Mack, I think every time it's time for him to answer the bell, he's lived up to it. True indeed, he's going to have to show and prove against Florida State, but he's finally won a big-time game against a ranked opponent on the road against the LSU team. He was able to right his wrong from the Tennessee loss. 
he was able to bounce back from an Arkansas dismantling, you know, of our entire team. So two years under, and he's the first coach in SEC history to, to win the East and to go to the NC Championship two straight years, and that's taking nothing away from the Spurs and the Urban Myers. So I think we're right on track, man, especially when we're the only team in college football and even the SEC that has all this up-and-down quarterback play. Well, Ben, thanks for your thoughts. I, I know you're one of my favorite Gators from back in the day, so really appreciate you being on the show. No, man, I appreciate you guys having me, man. This is one of two, man. Max guy, he still got one up on me, man. You guys got to have me back. <laughs> we'll do it for sure. Thanks, Ben. James, let's do it. SEC roundup. We're going to run into this quickly because this is what I like to call garbage weekend. Both Florida and LSU would have been playing garbage teams. Most of the other conference did. Um, Texas A&M beats UTSA 23-10. Georgia over Louisiana Lafayette 35-21. South Carolina over Western Carolina. Kind of close 44-31. Kentucky smashes Austin P. Bama rallies late to beat Chattanooga. And then some more notable results. Tennessee 63, Missouri 37. Big time score in that game. Yeah, that game was close for a long time. And ultimately, they just could not stop Josh Dobbs from running. So the the curious case of Missouri continues. Their defense is a dumpster fire, and they have a defensive head coach. It's not a good time to be a Missouri fan. It's an even worse time to be a Tennessee fan. Obviously, by now, whenever you're listening to this podcast, unless you're living under a rock, you have heard what one Butch Jones said today in his press conference about how Tennessee, how their players are truly champions. And Alan, I'll let you tell the story since you first told it to me. Well, uh, you know, asked if, you know, because Tennessee widely expected to win the SEC East this year. You know, don't know how they didn't win it. That's what has the opinion of most people. And he made the point about the seniors not winning any championships, but they were champions in the most important category, the champions of life. So someone went on and Butch Jones' Wikipedia page and under his accomplishments and championship section, it says two Mac titles, two Big East titles, one of life. So congratulations to the Tennessee Volunteers, 2016's Champions of Life. I'm <laughs> going to be mailing Butch a plaque with that soon. So look forward to that, Butch Jones. Oh, so happy that he's coaching Tennessee <laughs> and they haven't fired him yet. It's uh, it's a I, rewarding I experience. <laughs> I think they would if they had an actual athletic director right now, but I think he's going to get a pass. It's kind of a strange year. Let's go on to the next one. Arkansas puts up 58, Mississippi State 42. Yeah, Arkansas is a good offense, a weird team. They always are. Mississippi State is getting better throughout the year, so I guess Dan Mullen actually is a good coach is what I'm taking away from his season this season. They they have weird results, but they 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 make progress. And obviously Dak Prescott is becoming an NFL legend. So... That's off to Dan Mullen. He's better than I ever thought he would be. Yeah, the, uh, it's not a terrible result from Mississippi State, especially since their season is kind of in the toilet. Ole Miss, 17, the best, you know, one-win team in history or however many wins they have. Vanderbilt, 38. Big win for Derek Mason. Huge win for Derek Mason. He started on our hot seat, and he has vastly exceeded expectations. That team has gotten better. And, oh, by the way, he found himself a quarterback which we talked about during Fandy Week. And that defense has gotten better and better every single week. It was the the third and respectively fourth wins for the SEC East over the West. So it seems like the East was getting better as the year went on. And Ole Miss, yuck, what a horrible, horrible year amidst the scandals and the allegations that haven't really stuck. But that is a terribly disappointing year for them. 
yeah, let me ask you this. So, you know, Gators went on the red and LSU Vanderbilt takes out, you know, a still respected Ole Miss team. Georgia pulls one out against Auburn. You've talked a lot about the SEC West being much stronger than the East. Do these results sway you at all from that idea? They they do sway me. I had said the SEC least. It was the worst division in football. Uh, I think it was, to be fair, for a long part of the season. But the beauty of football is that the game really should be played with whose team is best at the end. Uh, that That's what it is. It's a long war. And whoever's best at the end typically is going to win that war. And, and I, I look at it that way. And I think that the SEC has made a lot of strides. Vanderbilt's better. I mean, Will Muschamp's South Carolina team has gotten better. We've certainly been better, especially with Appleby at the helm. Some of our young guys playing. Uh, Tennessee is is the same, I think, but they can hold their own. And the West has had some head-scratching results. And, and even those cupcake games you mentioned, I mean, Texas A&M struggled for a long time with a bad team. Chattanooga's a good team. They really gave Alabama a lot. That was fun to watch. We beat LSU on the road. So so I will say now that I don't think the SEC East is the worst division in football anymore. Uh, I think those teams have made strides. I, I think part of that is that Kirby Smart at Georgia, probably going to be a pretty good coach, tough situation. Um, and some of these West teams, they're in a little bit of chaos, a little bit of turmoil maybe is what we're looking at. More stress on that side per se. I don't, I don't really know what the narrative is, but it's surprising. Vanderbilt beating Ole Miss, I don't care if Chad Kelly's gone and their year is gone. That is surprising to me. And us beating LSU, a little less surprising. But regardless, good for the SEC East. And now maybe, what if, what if, I don't want to get ahead of myself, what if a stunner was pulled off and we beat Alabama? Wouldn't that be something? Well, congratulations to the SEC East for not being the literal worst. Okay, speaking of the literal worst, it's Florida State week. James, what are your emotions like heading into this game? When this week comes up on the calendar, what does it make you feel? It makes me feel happiness. I love this rivalry week. I think back of the Peter Warwick days and the Dillard shopping bag and just the height of the rivalry when it was the whole college football world was focused on it. I suppose that's the Ohio State-Michigan game nowadays, and it was really fun to be that game. I, I long for it to be that game again. Florida State's held its end of the bargain up much better than we have so we can only blame ourselves. And then I also think to myself how this week has been very frustrating. You know, we've lost three uh, games in a row. We've lost four of the last five. We got waxed last year. Um, so it's sort of this like, ugh, can we please beat FSU um, week for me. So it's excitement mixed with a little bit of the unknown of like maybe I feel like Florida State's better than they are because they've been beating us and I'm sick of losing to them. It doesn't feel like the Georgia week when you're just going to beat them. I don't know. How does it feel for you? Similar. I mean, I love this rivalry. FSU, <laughs> if you know me, they're at the list of my top five hated things. Like the people, the institution, you know, I think it's, I don't know, it's in my blood now to hate them. Being from Jacksonville, I think that especially is, is true. I don't, this is always such a fun game. I hated when they tacked on that touchdown at the end of the game last year. Because that game... Wow, 27-2 is a very lopsided score. It was pretty close most of the time. And I think the players are going to remember that extra Dalvin Cook touchdown. Um, so, yeah, a little spice to the rivalry never hurts. You know, I hate it at the moment. It's kind of fun right now if we can turn it around and play better this week. Um, James, give me a little primer on FSU. What do they look like statistically? Well, before I give the primer, I want to talk about some news that came out of the Florida camp today. 
to add to our, our woes, which seemingly is not stopping our train. But we've got some injury news. So you That's learned true. on Monday that we have lost Nick Washington to an ankle injury. And we have also learned that Jared Davis, as well as um, Brian Cox, are probably unlikely to play again this weekend. And so Washington's a complete surprise. We knew about Davis and Cox. But how does that affect this situation? Like, how does that affect your mood? Like, what's the injury situation here, Alan? Have we reached a point where the injuries are too many? Before we even look at what FSU can do, is it just has it just become too much? That's a good question. I, it's on the verge. I mean, I, we're still very deep at the defensive line. Those young linebackers have played well. We're still extremely talented at corner. If you had said in the middle of the season, Nick Washington misses the game, it's like, well, that's not good, but I don't know that it moves the needle that much. But missing him in this game particularly feels like potentially a blow. We'll have to see how it plays out. Now they're going to move either Chauncey Gardner or Duke Dawson or some combo of them back there and see how they do in practice this week. But it's potentially, you know, a really big obstacle because FSU is going to try to attack those safeties. They're going to, I think, throw the ball downfield. That's what I expect them to do. And also those safeties are really instrumental in corralling a player like Dalvin Cook from turning what would be a small gain into a big gain. So uh, I don't know. It really depends on how Gardner or Dawson play back there. I think it's overcomable, but I mean, it's just another injury, another veteran guy that's not going to be out there this week. And that tends to take its hold on the team. It does. We've overcome it so far. So we'll keep this ride going. As far as a statistical primer on FSU, uh, if you haven't watched them play a lot or if you're under the opinion they're not very good, the stats kind of reflect that and kind of don't. One really fun fact is that they actually get more penalties than we do per game. They're one of the most penalized teams in college football, 8.4 a game. We've dropped ours down to 6.9. That could absolutely become a factor. I would argue the sole reason they lost to Clemson was because of penalties. They had 12 of them for 120 yards. So we would look for them to commit some against us. That would be great. Um, offensively, they're a much better offense than we are. Their red zone scoring, most notably, is a ridiculous 96%, which is incredibly high. It's top 10 in the country. Ours continues to be a rather woeful 73%. Their defense is average but improving. They have a pretty good run D, a pretty maligned pass defense, not very good there. Their real weakness is linebacker. They play a lot of dime, and they struggle to cover four and five wide sets, which we don't run a lot out of. So more on that coming up, what we can do to attack them. And their defense gets a ton of sacks, uh, about as many as we do, actually. So even though their back line of the defense has not been that great, they generate a lot of pressure with that defensive line. Offensively, they're top 30. Uh, their rushing game has actually been more average than you would have expected with Dalvin Cook back there. So as good as he is, they haven't lit the world on fire total numbers-wise. Their biggest weakness on offense is their offensive line. They have a very, very inexperienced offensive line that has been prone to giving up a lot of sacks. And that's going to be something we'll talk about later. But that's the the general primer on it, which then really begs the question, Alan, like how good is Florida State? So we've thrown some stats out there. They play in the ACC. They played some weird games. They've scored a lot. They've scored a little. They got smashed by Louisville. Like how good is Florida State? That's a really interesting question. That Louisville game lingers in my mind. I mean, they got absolutely demolished. I mean, if Louisville wanted to, they could have scored 80 points in that game easily. So when I think about a, a team getting absolutely just sliced and diced, 
it's hard to say that they're a good team. Now they've won a bunch of games. You know, they had the Miami game, which they should have lost. NC State had them. So they should they could have a couple more losses on their record. So I don't I don't necessarily think that they're as good as their record indicates. They're not a bad team by any means. They're a solid team. But I don't think they're that good. If you play if they have to play elite competition, I don't think that they measure up. What about you? It's just hard to know because, like we said, they should have beaten Clemson, but then Clemson played weird games. They got smashed by Louisville, and then Louisville's played weird games. I think part of it's the nature of college football. I do think a lot of the reason why Florida State's a favorite in this game, anywhere from six and a half to eight or nine points, depending on where you're looking and what day you're looking, because they have a lot of like sexy individual players. So they've got, obviously, the freshman quarterback, Francois. And if you compare him to our guys, he's thrown for almost 3,000 yards and 17 touchdowns. You know, we're about half that. They have Delvin Cook, who's rushed for 1,400 yards, where Scarlett's rushed for 725. They have Travis Randolph, who's really not an exciting receiver, but he's got 744 yards and six TDs to Callaway's 545 and two touchdowns. Their best defensive end, Demarcus Walker, has 13 sacks to Zuniga's five sacks. And Travis McFadden, their best defensive back, has eight interceptions to Tabor's three. So there's this sort of like sexiness to Florida State. They've got these players. They play wide open. They have a lot of really impressive stats. But like you said, when you look at who they've played and how they've done, it's really, I think, really impossible to know how good this team is because by definition, they're good but not great. They're talented but not accomplished. They have holes. They're a beatable team, and that's why they play close games. Uh, So it's going to be a really interesting game this Saturday because unlike LSU, who you could put on the film on and say, look, this is exactly what LSU wants to do. We can run these two primary defensive packages to stop them. Florida State is completely the opposite. And they present a very difficult challenge for our defense. They are by far the most wide open team we run. They really have a, a fantastic offensive scheme with what they try to do to you. They're very balanced, very dynamic. And when you put them on film, there is not an easy way to teach your freshman linebackers how to stop what they do. And so it presents a big-time challenge for us. But does that mean Florida State's really good? I just don't know. I think this game is going to define, in a lot of ways, their season. Because we got a chance to go to the SEC East, it may not define our season, but it's certainly going to mean a lot to how good we are as well. So it seems like, Alan, this game is a game that's going to determine whether or not either of these teams are good. Yeah, really fascinating subplot to this because... I think, you know, if FSU loses this game, you know, I think that would put a really demoralizing mark at the end of their season. If we lose it, I don't know if that's the case, but there's a lot of people who would have looked at those LSU games and those Florida State games, and if they had to pick, they would have picked Florida State because of how we played against them recently and recruiting and all these other kinds of things. I would have chosen the LSU game, but... I don't know. There's there's a lot of interesting factors to this. They they do have a lot of stars. You're right, and that and you know, the fact that you know it's at home, which we haven't played well in Tallahassee very often. So I, I can see why that line is there, but I'm I'm not overly impressed with FSU. When you put in the film, and this is what has become my favorite thing to do probably on this podcast is how can we attack Florida State? And we talked about how we could attack and how we could defend LSU last week. This week's tax is, is far more difficult, like I alluded to on the defensive end. Um, what does is, what is Florida State like to do if you haven't watched a lot of their games or paid closely attention to the X's and O's? They're very multiple on offense. They like to use uh, 
dual tight end sets where they're going to have them either block or catch passes or pull all the way across the formation or run into the flats. But primarily, they will attack you successfully at all three levels. They can attack the flats, they can attack the, the deep outs, and they can attack the vertical passing game. They are by far the most vertical-oriented passing team we have faced all year. And so they're a team that will put three and four receivers out there, and they will run two-on-ones against your safeties. So it's going to be a very different experience for this Florida team to face the way Florida State runs offense. And there's nothing simple to pick up on tape. You can't just pick up tendencies as to what they do. So that's a challenge there. On the flip side, the defense can absolutely take advantage of what is definitely a weak offensive line. If you look at their three losses, they beat North Carolina in a shootout. It's unlikely we will beat Florida State in a shootout. So let's throw that example away. But let's look at Louisville and Clemson, two defenses that are statistically ranked pretty well, although you could argue maybe aren't so great because they pull out of unbalanced competition. But there is a common thread there, and it's that Louisville sacked Florida State five times and Clemson sacked uh, Florida State six times. So they got to they got to Francois and they got to him effectively and they got to him with very basic blitzes. It doesn't take a whole lot to do it. We have not historically this year been a team that blitzes a lot. If Jeff Collins continues what I think tends to be game by game tactical game planning, expect to see more blitzes this week based upon what Florida State's put on film. If you give Francois time to pass the ball, he generally has gotten better, better with each game and they become a very dangerous offense. I haven't even mentioned Dalvin Cook yet, but obviously he's he's an omnipresent threat. So definitely the best offense we've seen. Big challenge there. On the other side of the ball, Florida State's greatest weakness on defense is really teams that spread them out. Four and five wide sets give them a lot of trouble. They like to play a lot more dime than teams in the SEC typically do. Uh, they have a freshman linebacker who tends to be their solo linebacker in those dimes. So there's a lot of vertical alleys that are open against them. As to whether or not we're going to employ an offense that has four and five man sets against a team that sacks the opposing team a lot, I don't know. And that's why this game, out of all the teams I've watched on film, is the most perplexing for me. It's hard for me to build a game plan that easily leads for us to have a win because the matchups are weird and Florida State can expose us probably more easily than we can expose them. But the the big piece I think that's going for us right now, Alan, is there a team that probably feels like it's not their year and they're young and they're kind of getting better? And we're a team that is budding right now. We're full of momentum. We're really full of emotion. We're on a mission. And that tends to matter in a game like this, especially with the way these two teams' narratives have gone. Specifically, let's talk about two units that I think are going to be really important in this game. First off, let's, let's, let's talk about Austin Appleby. We didn't talk a lot about him even though I think he performed very well against LSU amidst numbers that look really poor. What is he going to have to do, and what are you expecting out of him in this Florida State game? Yeah, it's really interesting that he was one of the biggest X-Factors going into the LSU game. And the, the way the game went, he didn't seem like that big of a deal. But for him to go on the road and play well and play under control and not have one of those moments where he throws the, the other team the ball, although he got close a couple times, yeah, I mean, I liked his performance. Now, what we said going into the game is that LSU wasn't going to let him do what was successful for him against South Carolina, which is a lot of short throws in the ball on time and, you know, good velocity in the ball into nice spaces. Florida State might allow a little more of that. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I When we went to some of those five-wide looks against um, South Carolina, I was impressed with Appleby. I thought he did a good job getting the ball out of his hand 
you know, in a timely fashion. That's what we praise them for. And we're like, well, I don't know if that means anything for against LSU. And it really didn't. We didn't try much of that. I'm hopeful that he can play well against this FSU defense. If there's a big if the offensive line can hold up, we'll get to them in a second. What are your thoughts on Applebee's chances against this FSU defense? Well, he's had a really interesting season, right? He's played on the road against Tennessee, on the road against Vanderbilt, home against South Carolina, where he basically has to keep us in contention for the East, then go on the road to LSU and win that game. They took the ball out of his hands at Tennessee. Other than that, he had, I thought, a really good first half and a pretty solid game. Vanderbilt was his worst game for sure, but a win. South Carolina, he had moments where he looked really good, and I thought he handled what they gave him at LSU pretty solid. He had a 98-yard touchdown pass, second longest in Gator history. That's pretty cool on the road in a huge game. Um, I don't think they give him as much as they could, and I think what you said is the key. I really want to see him be in four and five wide sets. I think that would be what's going to allow us to score the most points. But I suspect, and this would not be a bad strategy, given how well we ran behind TJ McCoy and that offensive line you're mentioning, that we might think, hey, we could have a slightly different game plan this week because we have not been able to line up and run right at people. But if you can run at LSU, you should have plenty of reason to think you can run at Florida State. LSU's run defense is very similar to Florida State's uh, except LSU has more veteran presence and more veteran players. So there's no reason to think you couldn't do the same type thing. Um, Florida State is also less likely to load the box, whereas LSU is way more likely to load up and play man. Florida State does not trust their secondary nearly as much. So opportunity there. Uh, I also think Appleby will have opportunities to make plays in the passing game. Florida State's been susceptible to teams lighting them up. So I would like to see this be a game where Appleby matters more. I think he's going to have to matter more to win this game. But most importantly, Allen, the play of the offensive line, which we have talked about every single week. LSU, I think it's known that I'm not a huge fan of Sharp at left tackle. I was really excited for Ivy to play left tackle in this game. Sharp comes in. Aside from the play where Arden Key times the snap and runs in the backfield where no left tackle could stop him, Sharp got beat multiple times again in this game. And I feel like he adds to Applebee's maybe slightly than quicker feet in the pocket. I don't, I'm not at practice. I can't tell you who's best, but it's frustrating to me that Sharp continues to be there. I continue to come into games like these thinking, ugh, if Sharp wasn't in, I'd feel so much better. But this offensive line is going to have to have a very good day against Florida State. And and Sharp, the presence of Sharp alone, can just it, it worries me. Are you concerned with the offensive line, or do you feel like we've made enough strides that we can handle this? Well, I'm, I'm intrigued, like you said, about our ability to run the ball, you know, there were several gaps there between McCoy and Johnson and, you know, Ivy and um, McCoy. And so that was really encouraging. If you've watched FSU play, the guy that jumps off the screen, number 44, I believe, Walker, he is legit. And he <laughs> he comes around the end as fast as anybody we've seen. And we've seen some good players. He does worry me. I don't know if they're going to move him around or how they're going to use him in this game, but if they line him up opposite David Sharp and we don't give Sharp any help, no chip blocks or anything, it could be a long day for us. So I don't know if if Sharp can do a good job against him. Sometimes it's just as a matchup. Some guys are just bad matchups for other people. But So if we can win that left tackle battle, that bodes well for us. If we don't, it could be a lot of sacks, a lot of fumbles, a lot of stall drives. I, I'm not hopeful that they're going to play Ivy at left tackle, even though we both would like to see that. Maybe if we saw it, it'd be like, well, move them back. That was a terrible experiment. So it's hard to say. 
other than his, you know, brief window of playing there the previous week. The offensive line does concern me, but I don't know. We are still effective enough to make plays against LSU enough to win the game. So I, I, I thought the offensive line played better. And they're getting better. Juwan Taylor every week feels like plays better, more consistent. Johnson at right guard looks good. McCoy looks like a revelation at center. Ivy's been playing better at guard. We haven't called him out at all. He had some nice blocks. But I don't know. Maybe maybe they're not the weakness they were earlier on the season. Yeah, and hopefully they're not. They struggled against LSU. LSU's a very hard team to go against, as we talked about. That 3-4 scheme, the zone blitzes. Jordan Scarlett whiffed early on on a, on a pass pro play with a late blitz. Uh, you know, we, we got beat at, at times, which really derailed us. I think Appleby probably has 14 uh, or so completions if he has an extra second to throw. So we're going to need to generate some more time to pass in this upcoming game. Um, obviously, having a run game like you mentioned is important. So at least if they're not going to pass protect as an average offensive line unit, if we can get a running game that's slightly above average, that changes things. So keep an eye on the offensive line. That's going to be a big deal. Alan, what are your keys to the game? I'm going to start over with FSU quarterback DeAndre Francois and give him a little bit of a compliment because when I watched him play, he's taken an absolute beating in some of these games. He's taken some shots or I thought there's no way he's going to get up from that one. He does every time. But that speaks to what you were saying earlier about FSU's offensive line giving up sacks. And we've created some pressure on a lot of different quarterbacks and offensive lines that we're not sack heavy in our scheme, but I'm hopeful that Zuniga, Jefferson, some of these guys are going to be able to create pressure and force him into bad throws and interceptions. So if we can create the kind of pressure I think we can, I think we can come up with some some plays on that side of the ball. Um, so that's my, my key on defense. On offense, it really comes down to, I think, can we play a clean game like we did against LSU? Can we not turn the ball over? Can we avoid penalties? Can we run the ball effectively? And, yeah, if we do that, I think we've got a shot to win this game. Um, it, it doesn't feel overloaded to me. Now, we could get out there and we'll just watch FSU run all over us with our depleted defensive, you know, back seven. But right now it feels like we've got a chance. So those would be my two keys. What about you? Yeah, such an interesting game. Like I keep saying, I've said it at least five times now because it just really is. I think the the things that stood out to me, FSU's completion rate in their losses – so Francois was 33% completion rate against Louisville and a 48% completion rate against Clemson. Our defense is vastly superior to both of those defenses. If we want to win, we're going to have to hold them to a low completion rate. That's going to be crucial. And I think we're going to have to get at least five sacks. Could we win with less? Yes. But the dominance that we're going to need to exude on the defensive end in order to keep that offense probably still at 350 or 400 yards, which be which would be a very good day if we held them to that, I think those two things have to happen. So I'll be closely watching how many times we hit him or sack him and how, how many passes fall incomplete. That's really important. I think offensively, I don't know that this is a game that we can realistically win 17-13. to 13. I think we're going to have to score in the mid-20s. I think that can be done. I think Florida State's defense gives that up to us. So we're going to have to do that, and I think we're going to want to control the time of possession. We are a very different team from what Florida State has faced all year long. And that's probably the primary benefit that we have over them is we don't look like any other team they've faced. 
if we can hold the ball, if we can frustrate them and their home fans, I think that would be really, really important. So I'm going to look at time of possession, Francois' completion rate, and our number of sacks as my three keys to this game. While acknowledging there's a million different ways this could go. We're not even talking about Dalvin Cook as one of the best running backs in the game. But I think those three things could be what signals either a win or a loss for the Gators. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's there's so many narratives in this game. I could see it happening in almost any any scenario, every permutation out there. And yeah, and thinking about even how to predict this game is really challenging. So let me ask you to go first here, James. What is your prediction for this game? I sit here at the microphone right now, and my answer really is I don't know. I don't. I don't have. Like you said, I, I could give you ten predictions and justify all of them logically. I have a hard time with this one. I predicted it as a loss from the beginning of the year. I felt like we weren't going to be able to overcome the problems we had by the time this game came around because Florida State's going to get better and, and we're still a little bit limited. I feel like that's that's still the case, although we've gotten better and we proved we proved something against LSU. I like Florida State to win this game. It hate it pains me to say it. Um, I just feel like unless we really, really shut them down completely, there's more scenarios that they can beat us in than we can beat them in. There's just fewer scenarios I can create in which we win the game. So solely based upon that, I'm going to think Florida State wins this game by a score of, of 23-17. to 17. With all that being said, everything in my gut tells me the momentum of this Florida team is not going to be denied, and they're going to overcome any sort of logic. And, and that's maybe a twofold prediction, maybe a weak sauce hedging. But those are the, both of the thoughts in my head, and I, I literally can't pick one stronger than the other, so I'll just choose logic over emotion. What about you? Well, I'm going to lean the other way a little bit. I, I think we've been maybe the same on every game except for maybe one. I can't remember all our predictions. I love that this team just went on the road in a really tough environment and pulled out a win. I think that's going to give them a lot of confidence coming into this game. Or maybe if we had lost that LSU game, it's like, ah, you know what? This is even tougher, possibly. I have a very similar score to you. I'm going to go 23-20 Florida. I've talked myself into a win this week based on, I think, what we're going to be able to do on offense that maybe we couldn't do against LSU. Maybe we combine those LSU and, and South Carolina game plans a little bit and give them more trouble than, they're, than they want. So I'm going to go 23-20 Gators. All right, we are joined now by Jonathan Wallace, former FSU backup left tackle, member of the 2013 championship team. Jonathan, thanks for being on today. Yeah, no problem. Sorry, uh, Jameis, canceled on you guys last minute, but I'm a close second. <laughs> for you guys. Yeah, that guy is unreliable. Well, I can help. Well, it is FSU week. What's it like to play in this game? It's pretty incredible. It's just a whole different level um than the rest of the games as much as the coaches will tell you to treat every game the same and the players say every game's the same it's obviously just not the same i think it's just natural for guys when they're playing against miami or florida or florida playing against georgia or us it's just it's just a different level anytime it's a rivalry game everybody gets more excited campus is just a different feel and it's just a it's just hard to describe, but it's, it's just a whole different level. How much dislike is there between the programs? When you were on the roster at Florida State and you're in practice, like when it's Florida week, 
how much dislike really is there going on? It's it's kind of what you expect. I mean, I think really, I mean, I think the players kind of more have more of a hatred and spite and just in the fact that they, a lot of them played against people in high school and that angle. I mean, obviously you're just, you're bred to, you know, hate, you know, hate Florida, hate Miami. Um, and I'm sure it's the same in Gainesville, but I think the added um, angle of just so many of these guys played against each other and they might've been high school teammates and they're pissed that, you know, their buddy told them they were going to come with them and they didn't. And it just kind of creates a little bit of, animosity anytime you know you know the person that's lining up against you and that just that's going on so much in this game because obviously we're both in Florida and I think that added dimension just makes it you know that much more they hate that much more significant do the coaches bring up this game a lot like if you've lost it the previous year do they talk about it and use it as motivation really frequently uh for us no actually it's probably talked about absolutely none until Monday morning or of that week. I mean, that's just a, a Jimbo thing because he's just so process-oriented, never focused on anything beyond that game. So, I mean, like the players, yes, but coaches, absolutely. I mean, because they know it's like you don't even need to – I would say that the pregame speech, speeches, for example, are way longer versus like Wake Forest or Duke than – Florida or Miami because there's just so little that needs to be said. Um, so I mean, it really doesn't get – it's in everybody's mind, but it just doesn't get talked about until that week. So a lot of people talk about the differences between Florida and Florida State, and I think a lot of the fans, a lot of the students, a lot of the alumni, they feel like there's this massive difference between the two schools. As a player, if you could – describe it what's mm-hmm. the what's the difference between florida and florida state it's probably not as much as people like to think it is it's just the colors are just so contrasting and just it just you, you're kind of led to believe it's so much more than it really is and i mean i'd be honest i grew up a florida fan i'm obviously there's some there's probably some Gator players now that grew up Knowles and for whatever reason ended up being Gators. So I mean, that kind of stuff happens. Um, and then it just kind of is bred into you once you get there. That's, that's just, you just hate Florida, hate Miami. And then once you play with them, play against them that one year and something happened, somebody, I mean, somebody said something and then just every year, just kind of your hate for them grows. But I mean, the schools themselves and I mean, Every school has college kids that do the same things on the weekends, go to the same kind of parties. Most schools have hot chicks. I mean, it's. <laughs> I think we have more, but you know, it's. It's not as different as people probably want to make it seem. Let me ask you about this year's team. Do you feel like 2016 Seminoles are a disappointment? Are disappointment? I don't I don't think so at all I think I think a lot of fans think that and I think it's just because obviously the last several years that like we've just been um you know pushing on the, the playoffs every year with uh, one or two lo- losses and just to be kind of out of contention so early is kind of deflating for a lot of fans but I think I think if we beat Florida 
it's not a disappointment. I think if you lose to Florida at home, um, I, honestly, I, I would say this this week um, will kind of define that. But I think you beat Florida, you beat Miami, you have a 10-win season, especially if you win your bowl game. It's definitely not a disappointment. But, um, yeah, I'd say if we lose to Florida and lose the bowl game, yeah, I, I would say I would say it's a disappointment. But as of now, I mean, you take away that North Carolina game that we should have won. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not what we hoped for, but I, I kind of call it a disappointment. So two-part question here. There's rumors that LSU is, is coming hot after Jimbo Fisher, and there's rumors yep. that Jimbo Fisher may entertain that. So first part of the question, as a player – and you experience this, um, maybe not at all, maybe a little bit. But what's it like for the guys you know on the team right now when those rumors are going around? Do the players care at all about that? Do they think about that? Do they read about that? And then secondly, what are your thoughts on Jimbo leaving Florida State? Any chance he goes from what you know about him and what you know about the situation? Yeah, I don't think it's talked about at all. I and mean, it's just kind of, it might a little bit be an elephant in the room. But I think Jimbo's done a good job of just, you know, being emphatic that he plans on being an FSU, and I think that's what everybody thinks. Um, I can't say that I'm not a little just apprehensive about it. I still think odds are that he stays, but I do know, obviously, he definitely enjoyed his time at LSU and has a lot of you know, love for that place, but I hope he doesn't leave. Um, I feel confident he won't, but I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those people. I mean, I see – I have Gator friends and fans that think he's definitely going, and then I think they're wrong. I think some of my friends who think there's 100% absolutely zero chance he leaves, I think it's kind of wrong to say that, but I think it's most likely he stays. But, I mean, you can't – it's tough to say emphatically uh, that he's um, definitely staying or definitely going. But I think think he's most likely to stay. It's just a great situation he's in, and – yeah, I mean, maybe it's just hope, but I don't have any sort of inside info. It's just definitely my feel, and I don't think the players are, are thinking about it. Let me ask you for a prediction on this game. Who do you think is going to win and give me a score? Uh, I think we're going to win. I'm not just I'm not just saying that. I do think it might be – I think like the first half, I mean, just because of the intensity of the game and both teams have good defenses, I would say Florida earlier in the year had a better defense, but – We've been playing a lot better recently on defense. But both teams have good defenses. I would say it's a lower-scoring game, probably first half, and the scoring might open up in the second half. I just think it's two quality defenses, and we just have more weapons on offense. I think that's just kind of the difference. We have advantage at quarterback, obviously advantage at running back. Um, maybe receivers are a little bit better. Um, so I think that just makes a difference in the second half. So, I mean, I'd throw out a – arbitrary score i'll give you uh i don't know 24 to 10 it's a little a little bit more than the eight point spread but i'll say it's close maybe close to tied at halftime and then we kind of break away late so looking at one of the fans favorite subjects the sec versus the acc and given that you are a starter on the uh, field goal and extra point unit and you get to go against the opposing field goal and extra point units as well as log some time at left tackle Is there a difference? Yep. You played in the national title game. You played in the Florida game. Is there a difference in yeah. size, strength between the ACC and the SEC, or is all of that just really imagined? I mean, 
I would say I think it's I think a lot of it's just imagined, as you said it, and hyped. Um, maybe maybe the the only difference might be in just the, the depth. Maybe not this year because I think the SEC is kind of having a down year. ACC has been kind of up the last couple of years. But if you go back, um, I would just say like you know top to bottom. Um, I think the biggest difference has been not. I think the top teams in ACC and the top teams in SEC. I think talent wise high strength i mean there's not a, a difference at all i mean you can you can see the amount of first round picks acc's putting out there i think it's pretty much the same i think where it has been different it's just kind of the, the bottom the middle of the bottom it's just they haven't been you know like the eighth best team in the sec and the eighth best team in the acc that's been where the sec's just had a huge advantage over the last you know however many years or so so I mean that's where I think the SEC has a they have a depth advantage in terms of quality of teams. We have, I think, more you know, Wake Forest and um, those types of programs that don't always have the elite level talent that uh, you know Florida and Florida State have. But I think it's definitely not surprising to you guys to hear that. But I definitely think it's a little overhyped. All right, Jonathan, we got a bunch of fans heading up there to Tallahassee for the game this week. Uh, we know you spend a lot of time there. Give me your favorite restaurant in town. Favorite restaurant? Favorite um, restaurant. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I'd say uh, Jim and Milk Barbecue. It's an old barbecue joint on uh, Pensacola. It's actually probably uh, Pensacola Street. It's like within walking distance of the stadium. And, uh, yeah, they got some good specials. All you can eat. Can't beat it. I love it. Appreciate it. That is John. I think the menu actually says the full warning. I think on the bottom of the menu it says, um, "Gator fans receive smaller portions." So just keep that <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> well, that's fan. That's fan. Nothing better for a robbery yeah. week. That's fantastic. Well, Jonathan, yeah. thank you for joining us. He is Jonathan Wallace, a national tighter winner with Florida State, currently a Jacksonville resident and a state of Florida resident. So, Jonathan, thanks for being with us. We enjoyed yep. the time. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Good luck. This is rivalry week. Maybe the best week in college football. So many good games this weekend. Just so many to pick. We chose a selection here. Let's call it a three, four, five. Oh, look at that. A six-pack. Not on purpose, but a six-pack of games for us to pick. I'm going to walk us through them. We're going to pick who we think is going to win. Should be a most fun week of Turkey giving thanks and watching football. Let's start with LSU versus AM. A game that does not mean anything for the SEC West. Both of these teams maybe going in different sideways directions. Who knows? LSU on the road at AM. LSU favored by five. Who do you like there? Man, I really like AM in this game, and it's purely because it's on the road for LSU. And I think I don't know. I think their momentum has to stall out after this last game. It doesn't look like Orgeron's going to get the job. So just from a purely momentum pick here, I'm going to pick A&M. I like that. I'll stick logical and think that LSU's the better team and A&M is trending in the wrong direction. But that could be wild. One last note about LSU, since we didn't mention it. Darius Geis ran the wrong way on that fourth down play. A lot of you caught that during the game, but he was supposed to go left and he went right. So yeah, good crazy. news Coming for us. Coming out of a timeout. That's yeah, coming out of a timeout. Play. Correct. He may not have scored, but that was a very Les Miles-like move. Except if Les Miles had done it, he probably would have scored. And so you can tell Les Miles no longer there because he goes the wrong way, doesn't score. And oh, by the way, Coach Orgeron kind of threw him under the bus. It's not normal a coach would say that, 
but he came on this Monday presser and said he ran the wrong way, which, you know, for what it's worth, how will LSU respond this week with that kind of situation? I don't really know. Uh, Washington in a huge game, huge game against Washington State, a fun rivalry when those teams are good. Washington on the road, favored by six points. Who do you like here? The Apple Cup, most meaningful Apple Cup in since I can remember, maybe since Ryan Leaf days. I'm going to go Washington here. I, <clears throat> I think that they're the better team. And I think they play defense in a way that's going to give Washington State problems. It's going to be close, though. It's going to be a really fun game. I agree. It should be a fun game. Hard to find a way this game's not close, which means it could be a blowout. Who knows? But a lot of fun there. Let's go to Auburn, Alabama. Alabama favored by 17.5. I can't get over how these point spreads are for Alabama this year. At home against Auburn, 17.5 point favorites. What do you got here? Man, I would love to pick Auburn in this game. If... Auburn had Sean White and Petway, you know, any healthy running back for that matter, really. I think I would pick them because I I really love the way they were trending, and I thought they would give Bama trouble. As it is, there's no way I can pick them, and that that point spread might be about right. You hit the key points, and and that's that's the that's the difference. If those guys are there, I think that that's point spreads a lot smaller. Uh, and I think with those guys not being there, I think Alabama could really 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 blow the doors off them. This could get ugly fast. Auburn's very one-dimensional in their current situation. All right, South Carolina-Clemson. Not going to move the needle nationally unless South Carolina pulls an upset, but Clemson is favored by 24 points at home. What do you think here? This feels like a crazy high line. Now, some of these lines, we've said that, and the team is covered. I'm thinking about Ohio State, Nebraska, some of those things. But this is a rivalry game. USC's been playing better. Clemson's played almost every game close. So I can't see how this wouldn't be closer than that. So I would not pick South Carolina to win, but I would definitely pick them to cover. Yeah, it seems like an impossible task for South Carolina to win this game, given what we were able to do to them and given that Clemson will easily copy our game plan. But, 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 24 points against a Will Muschamp defense with the Clemson team that has at times been error-prone and not exciting is interesting. Keep an eye on the spread there. Utah playing at Colorado. Colorado wins this game. They win their division in the Pac-12. Huge, huge game here for Colorado. Relevant once again. It feels like Thanksgiving of old. I know in the 90s as a kid growing up with Thanksgiving, Colorado was relevant. It was fun. Here they are again. Ten and a half point favorites over Utah. A feisty team. A hard team to beat easily. What do you think? This is going to be a good game. I like this Colorado program. You're right. It does feel like you know, they should be good. College football is better when they're good. I'm going to take them here. Utah, man, they're up and down. It's hard to get a read on them, what they look like on offense or on defense from week to week. I think Colorado is a more consistent team. I'm going to take them. This feels like Colorado's year. They play really well at home. Their fan base is super excited. Utah's a team that's a perfect spoiler. I'm not going to pick Utah to win in this game, but I think it's going to be really close. That's just That's just how Utah typically plays in these kind of games. Last but not least, the big daddy, Michigan travels to Ohio State. Ohio State's six-and-a-half-point favorites coming off of an excruciatingly ugly win, 17-16 to over Michigan State last weekend. What do you think happens here? This is a tough one because what's going to be true for Michigan at quarterback? I mean, are they going to get their freshman back? Is that a possibility? What does John O'Corn look like against this Ohio State defense? I mean, Michigan's been my pick all year long, you know, to make the college football playoff. 
and I, I feel like they're going to pull it out. I don't know um, if this is – it's not necessarily an X's and O's. This is maybe a more coaching um, kind of choice here in that Urban – sometimes when he runs up against these guys, he doesn't do well the first time. So I'm going to go basically Harbaugh pick Michigan. Yeah, this one's really hard. If you give Michigan their quarterback, I think Michigan wins this game. JT Barrett cannot pass against teams that have athletic linebackers and a strong front four. Michigan has that. Uh, I have a hard time seeing Ohio State scoring in this game, and I have a hard time also seeing Michigan scoring in this game. So I think it's going to come down to a patented special teams play, which would give Urban the nod. But I just feel like this, this is not Ohio State's year. They've had the rabbit's foot. They have it a lot. It just everything in me, probably because I dislike both of these coaches so much, although I, I like what Harbaugh's able to accomplish once to pick Michigan. I really don't know, but I just think Ohio State's way too one-dimensional on offense to be able to win this game. It feels like Michigan can can do a few things maybe more. Um, I'm going to go Michigan in a game that I think is going to be decided by a special teams play. Man, that, that talking about that slate really got me pumped for this weekend. And coming off a big Gator win, we talked about, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if they won? So congrats to the Gators for pulling out a big win against LSU. And if you would like to win our Fan of Central swag, all you got to do is like our Facebook page. New likes, we're going to pick a winner. That's all you got to do. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Go Gators.